Thanks very much. No, I... Quite seriously, and you will soon see why I am very grateful for this invitation. I am proud to be here. And this is not like empty talk. On the contrary, I, when I talk directly and praise people, I like to insult them and so on. <laughs> what I mean is that in today's world, I notice this, in the, especially in the United States, this Ivy League and other big universities in our domain, our specific domain of our type of humanities, they are not interesting. Nothing of any interest happens there. What happens today in philosophy in Harvard and Princeton? Nothing. You have to look around to smaller colleges. And the same I heard, it's here, for example, the old big name, Oxford, Cambridge, and so on. No. Places like this one is where I'm proud to be, especially with my good friend, Frank. And now comes a little bit of irony. You will get back. You know, <laughs> what you, uh, you know when he went into this uh, 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 different versions of how people introduce me and so on, you know. And he just added another version, which was also already repeated, that you improvise on the difficulty to make an introduction, no? <laughs> you begin with, I don't want to make a long introduction, then you get caught in these reflections, <laughs> and you are even longer than uh, all others. Second uh, thing, uh, but this is a, a very interesting philosophical topic, more in the Freudian sense of small details which tell a lot. <clears throat> For example, what you try to do, this is not an interesting subject, how people introduce me, but I remember years ago, I think we talked about it. For example, to classify an epoch by the titles of the books which predominate, which are typical hegemonic for that epoch. I remember when I was young, it was after 68, gradual crisis of Marxism. If some of you are old enough, you may have the same vague memories. Like, already from the 70s onward, nobody dared to do a book simply Marxist aesthetics. You had to do something like Elements for a future Marxist aesthetics, or prolegomena for, like, we are not yet there, you know. And even some leftist parties that emerged at that point were not communist party, but group to organize a communist movement and so on, you know, distance. Then comes the period which I really, although I was even at some point a little bit identified with it, that I find disgusting, 80s and 90s, which was this... Typically, postmodern distinction between poetic title, explanatory subtitle. Like the one I remember is like, uh, Beat Me Harder, Darling, uh, Masochism in Feminist Poetry of the 19th <laughs> Century or whatever. You know, you have to do something poetic in the title, you know. And frankly, I don't have a theory what comes after that, but... It's an interesting choice. Now, for some insults to my really good friend, Frank, we are really friends, and I will give you a proof which will embarrass him. Uh, because uh, 
This is my crazy universe. That's why I get so many problems with political correctness and so on. For me, you can be polite, kind towards enemies. I think that precisely, not you Scotland, but the British way of life has this. How to speak in very nice words, but really insult totally yourself. My idea is that a true friend is the one to whom you can say very, even vulgar, brutal things. And the imply, implied logic, it's a very beautiful one, maybe. It's the logic of, you see, we are such good friends that we can talk like this and still be friends. And I can go pretty far here, since we are talking today about Beckett. I think maybe I went just a little bit too far. You remember? He is now happily married, recently with a wife, uh, Eve, who is a specialist in Beckett. And, sorry, it's my nature. You know, it's like the Scorpio who bites the frog. I couldn't resist it. I told him, I know what your wife told you after you spent the first night together. You know what? The most famous line from Beckett. Try again, fail again, <laughs> fail better. <laughs> Sorry, that's the price of being associated to me. But uh, what I really want to say is what important roles she played, really, in my development. First, if you are not convinced that Hegel is our contemporary. Read his book on Hegel's, it's translated into English, on Hegel's concept of rebel. You know, I'm sorry, here is a lady with a small child. You know what's my dream? I have this masochist dream. One would have been to ask me, please talk a little bit less loud. The girl wants to fall asleep and so on, you know, like... I, I have all the time this, or my ultimate masochist dream is that a phone rings and I excuse myself and calmly for 10 minutes, totally <laughs> private met. Unfortunately, we are not. We are the last surviving race. I think if the present trend of political correctness goes on, such an introduction as I made now will no longer be possible. I want to say that his book on Hegel's notion of pebble, rebel, he mentioned it, those who are not part of social edifice with no specific social position, but as excluded stand for the universal dimension. He, Frank, avoids the usual Marxist reading that Hegelian rebel is just a preparatory step for Marxist uh, proletariat, working class. But Hegel was still blah, blah, blah. No, if anything, today with immigrants, unemployed and so on, those without full citizenship, we have in a way even to return from Marx back to Hegel. And maybe he is also doing an extremely interesting stuff on determinism, freedom, and so on. Maybe even at another level, we should return to Hegel. Hegel is usually read and interpreted, especially in today's image of liberal Hegel, as the crazy idealist reason encompasses everything, we know everything. I think Hegel is maybe the most open thinker that we ever got. A proof. You know, 
one of the best, Hegel is usually dismissed politically as kind of a soft liberal fascist. Yes, human freedoms, but there must be a, a so firm social hierarchy uh, uh, to each his, her, their own position and so on. And it is usually to prove this point, one usually makes reference to his philosophy of right, which effectively describes such a system. But wait a minute. It's one of the most often quoted passages of Hegel, and people simply ignore its implication. Namely, when Hegel says, you know, in that famous passage that Marx tried to turn around, that, uh, that uh, the whole of Minerva, that is to say philosophical thought, takes off only in the evening to paint gray on gray. Hegel's idea is that philosophy cannot see into the future. It can only describe bring out the conceptual structure of a social, a certain social order which is already slowly disintegrating, approaching its end. So either Hegel was a total idiot or we should apply this also to his philosophy of right. Hegel is not presenting there in this corporate model the way future society should be. He's describing a model which is literally like vanishing, dissipating between his fingers, Hegel is absolutely open towards the future. Here we should return to Hegel. Uh, against this remainder, let's call it historical teleology in Marx. It's a beautiful construct, the one of Marx. But what Marx still believes is that we are in unique point of history, this, you know, the zero point crisis, but then we can already see the turn towards some more emancipated society and so on. And if we can learn anything from the 20th century, from the catastrophes of Stalinism and so on, is that no, that the emancipatory large movements, communist revolutions and so on, were also caught fully in this tragic uh, dialectics. So precisely, if we want to remain, and both of us still want to, if we want to remain faithful to Marx, we have to move further here. Sorry for this long introduction. Now, I will speak a lot about philosophy. Hope it will not be too boring. So I tried to squeeze in between here and there some nasty problematic passages. I would like to begin with how in our age of ideological decay, when inconsistency is less and less considered a reproach, the old philosophical motive of the coincidence of the opposites acquires a new specific form. Oppressive brutality is presented as its opposite as an instrument of liberation. An example which did strike me as shocking, it's again just a detail, but I think it tells a lot. It is almost a kind of a symptom of where we stand. Is there anything more brutal and destructive than a direct military conflict, killing, shooting somebody? Yes, of course, there are worse things like chemical and nuclear attacks, but for most of us, 
shooting at the enemy is still the paradigm of aggression. Should we then be surprised that the U.S. military is now searching for, this is not a joke, I was so shocked, it's really happening, is searching for bullets which would be biodegradable and contain seeds for new plants to grow where the bullet hits the ground. If you don't believe me, here is a report from some website. Firearms are an accepted part of modern warfare and military operations. But after the job is done, the environment suffers. Not only do spent shells and casings litter the landscape, uh, they can also prove to be a hazard to local wildlife. Not to mention the impact that chemical residues can have on future plant growth. The use as military recognizes that this is a problem and is now asking for proposals to mitigate the issue through biodegradable bullets and ways to seed growth as operations in the field continue. A couple of years ago already, the US Department of Justice sent out a public request for proposals to develop biodegradable ammunition loaded with special seeds to grow environmentally beneficial uh, plants. This effort will make use of seeds to grow environmentally friendly plants that remove soil contaminants and consume the biodegradable components and so on and so on. End of quote. Now, so these bullets are first to be used for training, but then imagine a country Uh, Imagine bombing a country and you can say, we really want to make it green. We will just bomb it to make it green, full of plants, with no waste left on the ground. But let me generalize this paradox. The same structure, the thing itself is the remedy against the threat it poses, is widely visible in today's ideological landscape. Take the figure of the great philanthropist George Soros. Soros stands, first, we should not forget this, for the most ruthless financial speculative exploitation, combined with its counter-agent, the humanitarian worry about catastrophic social consequences of the unbridled market economy. So even, I read somewhere, Soros's daily routine is marked by a self-eliminating counterpoint. The first half of the day, His work is devoted to financial speculations and the other half to humanitarian activities, such as providing uh, 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 finances for uh, cultural and democratic activities in post-communist countries and so on and so on. And basically all these modern humanitarian billionaires are doing the same. Take take, uh, Bill Gates. The most brutal, brutless uh, um, uh, attempt to monopolize the digital field, but at the same time the greatest humanitarian in the history of humanity and so on and so on. (laughs) Even in uh, ecology it's happening today. How uh, the very companies, (coughs) which like uh, Excon, all those old companies, are now presenting themselves as the only one who can save us. 
So the, the model is simply, uh, let's use market mechanisms to combat its destructive, uh, destructive effects of the market itself. Now, I have nothing against this in principle. Of course, we should uh, tax heavily uh, pollutants and so on and so on. But simply, with the scope of ecological problematic that we get today, this cannot work. Because the prospect of great catastrophes that we are facing today does not allow to this approach. You know, you must act quickly. Like I always mention this example, my good friend and very good theorist of catastrophes, uh, Jean-Pierre Dupuy, D-U-P-U-Y. As part of some European delegation, he was there the day after Fukushima catastrophe in Japan. And he told me that uh, for a couple of hours, Japanese government was in a total panic. They thought that they will have to evacuate the entire Tokyo area, 30 to 40 million people. Okay. They decided not to, but what I'm saying is, let's imagine, and I'm sure there will be catastrophes where something like this will be necessary. Are we aware to what extent we will have to change our lives to make such large and fast movements of populations uh, uh, feasible? I mean, we have to install new forms of international cooperation and so on and so on. I'm not here just criticizing the left, uh, uh, sorry, the right. I'm even criticizing the left. Now I will tell you something that you will not like politically. I'm more and more convinced that after the fall of traditional social democracy, communism, of course, there is one last remainder of an alternate project in the heart of remaining radical leftists, this idea of non-representative local democracy. You know, like, we all gather together, we organize collectively how to organize schooling, healthcare, and so on and so on. I, I think this absolutely doesn't work in today's conditions. We live in a global society, and even in order to have where they work, it's wonderful, this type of local cooperatives, you have to have a very efficient state to provide the basics, electricity, energy, and so on and so on. So that's why, to <coughs> provoke my friends, leftist friends, I made, and it caused a shock, a year ago or so in Madrid, a talk entitled A Plea for Bureaucratic Socialism. Now you will say, are you crazy? This is Stalinism. No. If you read Stalinism, the problem of Stalinism is precisely that it was never able to build an, a simple, efficient bureaucratic state, which is why it needed purges all the time. And what I like about bureaucracy, it's precisely what people... Uh, condemn as utter alienation and so on. Would you like to live in a shitty small society where every afternoon you have to debate how to organize kindergarten, this, that? No, I would like to live in a nice alienated society where some invisible bureaucratic network, okay, which also should be controlled in some sense, of course, organizes basic things. So I can do what I like to do, watch movies, read books, write books, and so on. 
I, I think this model of total pre-representative local democracy is very uh, problematic. But let's not get lost in <coughs> politics. Let's just conclude from this very brief introduction that, and now comes philosophy, that we live in crazy times which make Marx actual, but for this very reason we should criticize Marx. What do I mean by this? The problem with Marx is that precisely where he was right, he was right to such an extent that he couldn't even imagine how right he is. And that's why he... No, I will give you a simple example. You know the famous lines from Communist Manifesto that with capitalism everything solid melt into thin air, all stable forms are, uh, are dissolved and so on, all stable hierarchies and so on. But would Marx have even imagined where we are today? For Marx, sexual gender coordinates were still stable. That even that is today experienced as something fluid and so on. Or even nature itself. For Marx, nature was still, in the typical modern European way, with all its storms, wild things and so on, the stable background of our being. We humans are Promethean, uh, we uh, change things and so on. But somehow Marx still counted that Nature is this vast reservoir of forces and so on, is somehow strong enough to incorporate or to uh, neutralize the destructive effects of our activity. Now, as we all know, living in the era called Anthropocene and so on, you see, Marx was much more right. He should have also added in Communist Manifesto not only social forms, but even what we perceive as natural forms. Life on earth, our gender sexual identities are much more fluid, unnatural, and so on and so on. So this, I think, compels us to think more radically, to question many Presuppositions. Ah, another nasty thing I want to provoke you politically. Marx mentions in Communist Manifesto also that all old patriarchal relations are with developed capitalism are undermined, rendered fluid, and so on and so on. And that's why I think, with all my respect I <coughs> for transgender movement and so on, that's why I am not surprised that transgender movement is so immensely popular among great corporate figures of the United States. You remember when month before Trump was elected, I mean, this is, I think, one of the reasons why he won. The main topic of big left liberal media like New York Times and so on, what, what to do with transgender toilets? Is it two, three, is it single toilet, and so on, and so on. And uh, what made me a little bit suspicious is that all of them, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, uh, name them, all of them fanatically, even the worst capitalist, like who is now, I forgot, after Steve Jobs, the boss of Apple, 
Tim Cook or who. They all fully supported it. I mean, we should accept it. Yes, of course. But that's another topic. Transgender, me too. But uh, they are not, I claim, inherently revolutionary. They fit perfectly the dynamic of late capitalist subjectivity with this infinite plasticity and so on and so on. That's why I also have a problem, although personally we are in good relations with my big philosophical nemesis, Judith Butler. Uh, I agree with her. She gives the correct description of what is happening today. You know, we no longer have or less and less this binary logic, predetermined sexual roles. We rediscover, recreate, repeat, reconstruct, invent our identities. My only problem is, what's so revolutionary about it? My reproach to her is that in some sense, she is simply describing modern late capitalist typical modern late capitalist subjectivity. We live in a unique era where today, if we can construct this in a naive way, uh, I simplify it. Today, ideology, and I don't mean a personalized ideology, but in the most elementary sense, when you're growing up and all the time later, what society is telling you to be in a very naive way? What does it expect from you? My God, it's no longer obey your father, sacrifice yourself. It's what I ironically like to call spiritualized hedonism or enlightened Western Buddhism. Basically, the message is there are no higher causes worth sacrificing for, enjoy life, but not in a stupid sense, look into yourself, recreate yourself, explore your uh, potentials, and so on and so on. Sometimes this also has very comic effects. For example, recently, not, not so recently, years ago, I was in Argentina, and I was told there a wonderful story from a historian of psychoanalysis, how things changed, because as Foucault, I don't agree with him, I'm not a Foucauldian, but he's not an idiot, one should read him. So, Michel Foucault noticed in a very nice way somewhere how the key decision, power decision, of a psychoanalyst is, what is a symptom that has to be analyzed as a clinical case, and what is just a normal state that doesn't deserve to be analyzed. You know, somebody comes to you, if you are an analyst, I am not, and you can guess why. Once a student, this is not a joke, unfortunately, once a student in New York told me I would like to go to you in psychoanalysis, my idea was you are really mad. (laughs) Okay, but seriously, they told me that, a very simple, stupid example, Half a century ago and more, a very traditional, stupid point, simplistic, with regard to promiscuity. If you were a man or a wife, promiscuous, sleeping around with others, it was considered pathological, something to be interpreted. You know, the idea was, what are you running from? Why this fear from stable relations, whatever? Did you have Oedipal problems, blah, blah. Today, they told me it's the opposite. I'm not joking. 
If you are faithful to your wife or husband, you'll get, oh my God, uh, you have a traumatic fixation. This has to be a <laughs> thing. So, you know what's the first lesson here? That uh, it's not just a stupid game of words. Hysteria is historical. Forms of hysteria are always historically specified. In what sense? In the sense that hysteria is, my old Lacanian and at the same time Marxian thesis, hysteria is the elementary form of critique of ideology. Critique at ideology at its most elementary <coughs> subjective level. Because as you already, I think, indicated, uh, incidentally, I will not go into it, but that's what nonetheless makes me some kind, at least I hope, uh, some kind of a feminist, because hysteria is feminine. If you want this opposition in types of uh, pathology, obsessional neurosis is uh, more masculine. There are even among some clinicians that I know great debates of uh, can there be even a feminine uh, obsessional neurotic. But what I want to say is what is hysteria at its most elementary. It's uh, an undermining of interpolation. By interpolation, I mean this mechanism elaborated by Lou L. Tisser of ideological identity, like society or figures of authority are telling you who you are, your symbolic identity. You are my wife. You are professor. You are pupil. You are revolutionary. You are a communist, whatever. And you recognize yourself in it. But the basic hysterical question is, but why am I what you are saying that I am? This elementary doubt, not, it's, not, it's much more interesting skepticism. It's not about reality. Are things really like that? The question is, who am I? Am I really? You know, it's uh, the, the old Juliet from Romeo and Juliet question, what's in that name, am I that name, and so on and so on. And <clears throat> I claim that here we should move further from the revolutionary, I always doubt if they were so revolutionary, uh, uh, 60, 68, and so on. Because there, and this is, I wonder why people do not analyze it more. This is one dark anti-feminist undercurrent I know I was there, not participating too much, but I remember this tendency. Uh, 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 undercurrent of 68, it was mocking hysteria as feminine, they provoke the master, but it's really a desperate call for a new master and so on. And they were celebrating perversion. Perversion, that's it. As even Freud, in a very inappropriate way, put it once, perverts really do go to the end what hysterics only dream about. I think, for reasons that I will not develop now, that uh, this and Jacques Lacan and Freud are very clear at this point, no, perversion is not subversive. Perversion is always the hidden, obscene other side of every power structure. Every power structure needs some kind of a support in perversion and maybe what is happening now with Trump and so on is that simply this perverse underground is coming <laughs> directly uh, 
into the open. But the true undermining of authority is the hysterical one. Is this questioning? And I think, and this now will bring me to philosophy, that this questioning, why am I what you are telling me that I am? I mean, you can detect this questioning even, and it's a very deep question, which is usually dismissed by men as, uh, uh, as uh, uh, woman annoys me and so on. This proverbial boring uh, questioning of a man from a woman when they are a couple, tell me why do you love me? It's a very good question because there is no answer to it. The paradox is that the moment you can answer it is by definition not love. My God, love is not like, you know, sorry for vulgarity. I have three women. Ah, this one has good legs, nice smile, this one has nice eyes, this one whatever, and then, oh my God, this one has four points, the others only one, let's, no. The, you know, uh, let's go a little bit in theology here. Intelligent theologists are dogmatic in a correct Marxist way. They know very well that if you say, I believe in Jesus Christ because I've studied comparatively all religions, and my God, Christianity has the best arguments. <laughs> if we were to be in medieval times, if somebody claims that, I would say burn him immediately. <laughs> the proper Christian answer is, yes, there are reasons to believe in Christ. But to understand these reasons, you have to believe. And it's exactly the same with love. You can say why you are in love. That woman, and you always notice details, uh, nice smile, whatever, the way she laughs. Uh, but uh, these details appear as cause of love only when you are in love. To others, they are just ordinary features and so on and so on. Now, you will ask me, okay, this is some kind of religious erotic mystique. What does this have to do with Marxism? It has because Marx is claiming exactly in contrast to Stalinism, although I'm not saying Marx is innocent and so on, I mean, about Stalinism, <coughs> uh, about proletarian position that you, Frank, mentioned, that for Marx, it's not the way Stalin describes it. A social analyst look at history and see a tendency. Oh my God, look, proletariat is now weak, but the future belongs to proletarian. This is the winning horse, so uh, let's join the working class. No, the point of Marx is that Marxist theory is not a neutral theory. It's a theory which appears to you in its truth, only if you occupy a certain subjective uh, proletarian uh, position. But, okay, the, what I want to do here now is something else. To elaborate a little more this structure of subjectivity implied here. Subjectivity as such uh, uh, is this self-questioning. There is no subjectivity without this self Questioning. That's why perverts, and perverts by definition don't question things, which is why every good psychoanalyst will tell you it's very difficult to cure in psychoanalysis perverts, because they have answers. They know what's good for you. 
even if you suffer in it, you know. Perverts are typical politically totalitarians. Like you in, not you, you, but uh, in England, I mean, Great Britain, uh, uh, this, wa- there was this wonderful formula, which is pure perversion, by uh, Charles I, before or- Orwell. No, Orwell, sorry, Cromwell did the good thing. <laughs> chop, chop, his cat. Didn't he, it's quoted, I think, by Hannah Arendt. He made this wonderful statement, my God, I will set free the British people even if I have to kill them all, or whatever, you know. <laughs> this idea of, I know better than you what is good, for yourself. Precisely when I appear a cruel bastard to you, I'm really working for your own uh, good. It's the position of knowledge. That's why I don't have time to go into it, but just to make you see how things are connected here. That's why, for example, I was tempted as an old Stalinist. when you applauded me briefly after this worthless introduction, <laughs> to join the applause. Because you know why? I'm sorry if you know this old joke of mine, but uh, uh, this is the difference between Stalinism and uh, uh, fascism, similar as they may appear. A fascist master is a pure master. Hitler gives a speech, people applaud, Hitler just stands up and receives the applause. Check it up if you don't believe me in old documents from Communist Party Congresses. Whenever people applaud to Stalin, he stands up and joins the applause. You know, the message is, I'm one with you, I'm not the master, I'm a servant. I serve you the people, we are all together servants to the uh, historical cause, and this changes subjectively everything. Let me provide a little bit to amuse you maybe... That's why, for example, you have something in Stalinism that is unimaginable in fascism. I read this, not from some crazy left-winger, from one who is very much anti-communist, and Applebaum Gulag. Do you know that in the worst years of Gulag, 49-50, every year on Stalin's birthday in a Gulag camp, all inmates were brought together, and they all had to sign a telegram to Stalin wishing him all the best. <laughs> Can you imagine something like this? It doesn't work in Nazism. On Hitler's birthday, they collect Jews in Auschwitz. Now, you know, wh- you know why not? It's very interesting. Because Stalinism is, in all its horror, part of European enlightenment. Which means that even if you are the worst scum, traitor, whatever, Still, you are able to participate in universal reason and see what kind of a scum you are. (laughs) No, no, it's literally, read their horrible reading. The minutes of uh, interrogations in Stalinist horrible uh, horrible, uh, show trials. It's incredible how, for example, the one maybe most horrible rhetorically, I read it, on Rudolf Slansky in Czechoslovakia. General Secretary of the Party, he was then uh, uh, taught and taught. His interrogation goes like this. The prosecutor tells him, explain to us how did you, I simplified, how did you become an enemy of the people? 
And he answers, already in my youth, my parents installed in me the hatred of the working class. And, you know, he gives the, in, an entire objective explanation. So it's as if you are, even if you are the worst Trotsky traitor, <clears throat> you are at the same time vermin, piece of shit, Stalinist youth, all this. But at the same time, you participate in universal reason, and you can see, of course, this is all a charade, it's horrible spectacle, but the truth about yourself, in fascism, this doesn't work. It would have been easy for Hitler to organize a mega trial of leading Jewish figures in Germany where they would have to confess the Jewish plot or whatever. This is meaningless in the Nazi universe. Why? <coughs> Maybe Nazism is here a little bit worse nonetheless, because, and that's the horror of Nazi anti-Semitism, you don't have to prove anything to a Jew. You just have to prove that he is a Jew. You are guilty, literally, fully for existing, for what you are. But let's go on. So, perverts, no. <clears throat> but uh, the truly subversive position is the hysterical one of questioning uh, knowledge. And here, I think we can clearly see the progressive legacy of modern, even Cartesian philosophy of the notion of cogito, thinking subject, and so on and so on. Now, let's improvise this a little bit. What do I mean by this? Let me take a strange example. I'm sorry if some of you know it. In some of my books, I mentioned it already, the last books, a little bit. Uh, I will not be ironic, as people accuse me, against LGBT+. I will see, try to convince you precisely what is great in this movement. Why plus? LGBTQ, whatever, plus. You have, here I'm critical of you, not of you, but of British empiricism. The predominant reading is the Ironically, I say this, British empiricist one. They claim we, so that the idea is this one. In patriarchy, we have this binary logic. You have two main positions, masculine, feminine, defined as gender roles. But this is binary patriarchal oppression. There are many gender roles, positions, and we have to be open so they propose, instead of the binary, and then maybe you tolerate some exceptions, the list of all possible sexual positions. The state of New York even proposed, I think, 33 or 34 these identities. Butch, bi bigender, trigender, asexual, and so on, all of them. But they want to be careful. That's the usual explanation of plus. They want to be careful and claim, but what if our list is not complete? Because as we know, all classifications tend to be incomplete. What if a group will emerge, we say, wait a minute, we are not on the list there. So to keep this open, you add a plus. But, and it's not my invention. I know some from Australia, I forgot their names. There is an LGBT plus group we did something, now we are in Frank's domain, very Hegelian. Their point is, but I want to be plus as such directly. Don't take plus as just a shorthand for all other 
you can be plus itself. In the sense of you, in your subjective position, identify with the excess itself. I am, and this is the best definition of the subject, I claim. This is what Hegel means when he says subject is not substance. Subject is in itself an excess. This means, this status means something beautifully paradoxical. We don't have time to go into it. Once I compared it with the status of, I'm stupid here, I think it's a photon in microparticle physics. Namely, the idea is this one. Every particle has a certain basic mass. It must must be something. And then, of course, this mass grows, at least in the way it affects environment, if this element moves. For example, this bottle has a certain weight, and if I put it like this, it exerts a certain pressure on the surface of this table. But if I drop it, and if it doesn't then explode, if I drop it from high above, if it hits the table with a certain higher velocity, its pressure will be much greater. If instead of this we put a heavy piece of iron, if I gently put this iron on this table, nothing happens. If I drop it from two yards up, maybe it will break the table. But then, the definition of some particles like photon, so I read, is that they are the paradox of elements whose, whose entire substance, mass, comes from velocity. It's not mass plus what is added through movement, they are only as excess, you know what I mean? Like, if you take away this surplus wave which comes from movement, they are nothing. And I think that uh, human desire and subjectivity, to cut a long story short, are something like this. And when Lacan talks about, uh, when Lacan, Jacques Lacan talks about uh, so-called object A, object cause of desire, it's pre end of surplus enjoyment, plus de jouir, it's precisely a paradoxical entity which exists only in excess. When Lacan speaks about surplus enjoyment, it's not we have a basic enjoyment and then a surplus enjoyment. Basic enjoyment is simple pleasure, it's not enjoyment for Lacan. Enjoyment is in itself an, an excess. And now, let's go further to amuse you a little bit. I will try to develop it now. Uh, 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 Here, maybe you can correct me later. Maybe I'm simplifying things, but uh, I undoubtedly am. But like, I would like to draw, maybe there is, maybe not, I'm not so sure, a difference here. It doesn't matter if I really hit with this Alain Badiou or not. The difference between Badiou and Lacan. For Badiou, subject is without an object. What makes subject, subject is precisely, it's not embedded in object and so on. For Lacan, there is no subject without an object. 
Even the most abstract subjectivity, the Hegelian, pure self-relating or Cartesian cogito, need to be sustained by an object. But this ob object is not a paradoxical object, it's precisely this object as excess, as surplus enjoyment. Now, all this was an excuse to tell you a wonderful old Jewish joke, <laughs> which, I'm so sorry, I will disappoint you, it's not a dirty joke. It's, I like to... I like to do things which today in the United States require, as they say, trigger warning, you know, now in American academia. And once I even proposed that a student should enter the room prior to my class with a great poster, trigger warning, trigger warning. So the joke is a well-known one quoted already by Derrida, by others. I'm sure you probably know it. On Saturday in a synagogue, Jews are saying things to each other, not confession in Christian sense, they don't confess, but okay. So uh, the, the rabbi, powerful figure, says, oh my God, I'm nothing. You, I'm not worthy of your attention, I'm nothing. Then a rich Jewish merchant stands up and says, oh my God, I'm also nothing. I'm not worthy of your attention and so on. Then a poor ordinary Jew stands up and says, God, I'm also nothing. And then the rich merchant kicks the powerful rabbi and says, but who is this guy? This nobody, he can say, who does he think that he can just say that he is also nothing <laughs> and so on. It's a very interesting joke because what you find in this joke is the idea, precisely, that's the point of this joke, that to say you are nothing is not as innocent. It may appear as an utter self-humiliation. But this very gesture of claiming, of denying all your particular features, of abandoning your identity, brings object A, brings a surplus enjoyment. Now I will give you precisely a very problematic example. It's more adapted to United States situation, but I think it, it's a nice way. Involved in many polemics and debates in the United States, I encountered this problem. I noticed how first, it's a very simple observation. Some people even claim it's not true, but more and more it's true. You know how the more you are perceived as marginal, powerless, the more you are, it's not only tolerated, but you are even required to assert your particular identity. Like, to be vulgar, if so-called Native Americans, I say so-called because I have many friends among them and they hate this term. You know what? I'm sorry if I repeat an old joke. You know what one of them told me? He told me, I much prefer to be called Indian than Native American. Because Native American means what? We are native, natural, and you white people are cultural, or what? He told me, if you call us Indians, at least, at least the name Indian is a reminder of your white man's stupidity. You thought that you were in <laughs> India, you know. No, they have an incredible sense of how false this uh, patronizing respect towards them is. You know, like 
we white people exploit nature, but when uh, Native Americans dig a mountain, they first ask the spirit of the mountain for permission and so on, all that stuff. They hate this. One of them wrote a wonderful book, a short essay, not book, sorry, trying to prove that Native Americans killed more buffaloes and burned more forests than all white men combined. <laughs> no, I mean, probably not true, but his point was, we are tired of this false... So, what I want to say here, that in this line, okay, Native Americans, if you return to your tribal traditions, ooh, wonderful, wonderful, they are restoring their culture and so on. Then, <clears throat> blacks, okay, still absolutely okay. Especially if I always thought it was the worst ideology. Uh, if you like that uh, roots idea, you know, you go to Africa, ooh, I discovered a tribe from where my grand-grand-grandparents were. Uh, incidentally, that's why I like Malcolm X. He was absolutely opposed to it. He said, Malcolm X. X means we don't have roots. We cannot return to roots. They are destroyed. And this gives us a unique chance of uh, new freedom. <clears throat> but what I want to say is that... And then it goes on. Japanese orientals, yes, still. You begin to smell bad, but still. Italians, suspicion. Germans, ay, 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 and then at the end, white Protestants. If you say we want to assert our identity, you are practically immediately denounced as white supremacist, uh, fascist, and so on. I am well known of uh, discrete power relations why it's not innocent to be... Uh, to assert your identity. That's not my point. My point is the hidden bias of those who pretend to say, you know, this eternal self-whipping, like you say, we, uh, our identity embodies oppression of others and we don't have the right to assert our identity. But you know what I noticed systematically again and again? How? Okay, they absolutely prohibit to their own group, white, anti-racist, multiculturalist, to assert their identity. You know, and then, you know, the more you are away, marginalized, the more you can. But it's so evident from all the debates where I participated of how this apparent self-humiliation, we are guilty of it, blah, 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 gives them an extraordinary position of authority precisely as negating their particular identity, they stand for universality. They always, uh, <coughs> I was so often, for example, after that thing happened, you know, Indians didn't want to be called Indians but Native Americans, there was immediately a good white guy who told them, you shouldn't call them this, this is, you are falling into the trap of white, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's incredible to what extent, and this is the, the surplus enjoyment. I apparently humiliate myself. Who am I? Nobody. But you know very well that this nobody gives me a certain ideological preference and so on. And what I am afraid, we will not have time to go into this today. Uh, uh, what I am so afraid is that... It, Parts of Me Too and so on, 
you have a similar logic of using victim, using victimhood, proclaiming yourself powerless, gives you an immense power. I mean, I often am, maybe because I talk in indecent ways often, uh, I am often a victim of this, like people attacked me, they stopped even interrupt my lectures and so on, and claim that they talk from the position of victim, I'm making fun of victims, but it's so clear that in the concrete const- uh, academic constellation when they say this, they act as the pure figures of brutal power. I'm not even allowed to defend myself and so on. Now I want to make a step further, if you uh, allow me, uh, uh, and tell you another Jewish joke which works even better. It's a very sad, tragic joke, but again, uh, uh, it also tells us how a true atheist, which doesn't mean simply ignoring religion, should a true atheist, which is for me this pure hysterical subject, denying its own identity, should refer to divinity. Uh, It's a joke about Auschwitz, and incidentally this shocks me all the time. I think that uh, how, when things are really tragic, horrible, beyond tragedy, often, the only appropriate thing to do is comedy. It's not easy comedy, like that you laugh, but you know, when things get really crazy, so what do I mean here? Let's go on. I mean, I know numerous Jewish jokes about Auschwitz, even from my recent past of my ex-country, Yugoslavia. I know that survivors of Srebrenica have a series of extremely vulgar jokes making fun of themselves being slaughtered by by uh, Serb army at that point. But, okay, that's not the point. The point is that this is a joke. To understand this joke, you only... You have to remember this old theological motive. God died at Auschwitz. The idea is that what happened in Auschwitz and elsewhere with Holocaust is so horrible that if God was there, it was too much for him. God couldn't have tolerated that. So the idea is God died in Auschwitz or God was not there. Uh, God was not there. It couldn't have been. The idea of God somehow regulating our universe is too much for it. So now comes the really uh, evil part. It takes place in paradise. A group of Jews who died at Auschwitz. It's paradise. They have a nice time. They sit on a nice bench in a meadow and uh, tell dirty jokes about their experience in Auschwitz. And one of them says, this mocking way says to another Jew, they are all dead, no? You remember, Jacob, how when they were dragging us towards, uh, towards the gas chambers, you slipped down and hit your head and died even before entering the gas chamber. And they all laugh. <laughs> they make fun. And then, now comes the beauty of this joke. Then uh, God, he has a break, God himself walks around to have a short break and listens to these jokes. 
and looks at them in a strange way. And one of the Jews asked him, tell us, our master, what's wrong? And he says, sorry, I don't understand this. And then an old Jew steps towards him, embraces him and said, don't worry, of course you don't understand it because you are not there. You know, but you know what's the beauty of this joke? It's that it's not about, <clears throat> it turns around the standard cliche, you were not there because, uh, 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 because you couldn't tolerate such horror. No, the idea is, of course, God can tolerate the horror. God doesn't have the joke. That's what escapes God, that you can even make, make fun of that. And I don't have time to go into it now. But I would have said that, this is my materialist, I'm a total materialist Christianity, that with Christ you get a totally different type of joke. Christ is not a savior. He is one who would understand this joke. I always think that we should read the, the New Testament as a comical book. Like, didn't you get it how, for example, Often Christ says something. The disciples don't understand it. And then Christ said, I will, says, I will tell you a parable. And then this parable is totally confusing. And <laughs> you need to read it back even to understand the parable. You know who knew this? So that you will not accuse me of, uh, of going into cheap obscenities. <clears throat> it's Kierkegaard who emphasized this. He has the most beautiful metaphor for what Christ's arrival on earth means. He said, imagine there is a court, castle, big hall, in a castle, all the, uh, all the curtains, blah, blah, and you expect the king to arrive in all his majesty. And then behind a small curtain, a small dog runs as if by mistake on, on the scene. And he says, this is the arrival of Christ. No, things are much more complex here. But, okay, let's now, uh, in the, in the uh, remaining time, <clears throat> sorry, because I drag on, no? And I almost uh, forget to, we didn't yet come to Beckett, no? <laughs> but it's already one hour, and I almost wanted to say, maybe the title of this talk should have been a version of my old joke that I quote all the time, already in my first book, you must know it. The, this standard, one of the most beautiful, complex Soviet anti-communist jokes about Lenin in Warsaw. You know it, that uh, there is, that's the myth, of course it's a joke. <coughs> there is in Soviet times, in a gallery, an exhibition, and there is a painting there. On the painting, it's Nadezhda Krupskaya, uh, in the middle of a sex act, fucked like crazy by a young communist Komsomol member. And the title of the painting is Lenin in Warsaw. And a surprised visitor asks, but why this title? Where is Lenin? And the guide says, of course, Lenin is in Warsaw. <laughs> That's why he's doing this here. <clears throat> so maybe I can say this title is like something like, you know, Be <laughs> Beckett is in Warsaw. So... <laughs> so I cannot mention him, but it's still the title. No. <laughs> now comes, if you allow me just a little bit, I will condense it, the philosophical part. Mostly. Uh, the lesson of this empty hysterical subject is 
praising abstraction. True Hegelians are not thinkers of the concrete in the sense of, let's have a concrete analysis to understand the phenomenon, you have to put it in its context and so on. No. The first step is always to understand a situation. It's a brutal abstraction. You take privilege one feature, which even appears pathological marginal, and then which and then by by tearing out this feature, you denaturalize all of it. The organic whole is lost, and then you reestablish totality, but from this standpoint, from the standpoint of this feature. To go quickly, I will give an example which I already used in two, three my books, but it's very clear, so forgive me if to some of you I'm repeating myself. Uh, there is a wonderful passage in Marcel Proust's uh, In Search of a Lost Time, where uh, Marcel, not Proust, but the narrator, the figure, for the first time speaks with his, talks to his grandmother via phone. He calls her to Paris. And something weird happens. When he hears for the first time grandmother's voice in its abstraction, not as part of her totality, entire personality, he over, all of a sudden noticed what a vulgar, stupid old lady she is. There is no charm, she is senile, and so on and so on. Now, to dispel this impression, he goes to Paris quickly to meet her, to talk with her. And then things get even worse. Why? Because, of course, she notices all, she notices all other features. But they are all spoiled by his experience of the voice. He notices how vulgar she is, senile, whatever, and so on and so on. This would be the passage to Hegelian concrete totality. Abstract totality is this organic grandmother and so on. Concrete totality is when you tear out one feature and to take a look at the totality, but from the distorting angle of this feature. Now you will say, this is a bad joke, what has this to do with theory? Well, Marx and Freud are doing exactly the same thing. When Marx says that economic crisis is the key to understand capitalism, it's precisely this, take a phenomenon which may appear an excess, it provides the key. Freud is saying the same. Pathological phenomena are the key to understand normal functioning of the mind. Before I go, do I have some 10 minutes maximum? My God, uh, never did I felt so objectivized and terrorized <laughs> as with this. No, I will try to be very brief. Okay. First, I wanted to tell you that <clears throat> I have a larger development here, but I will... Uh, 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 I will reduce myself to one example, how you can do the same thing, this was just meant pedagogically, with movie actors. Take Tom Cruise. He plays a certain person, stage persona. And then there is one role, usually some courageous, whatever it is, you know, but there is one exception. Did you see his movie, not his movie, he is one of them, Magnolia, 
where he plays a very vulgar guy who gives some vulgar how to fuck them, screw them, sexual education classes. <clears throat> what if we take this as the key to his entire personality? And it gets very interesting, of, or even a better example, the Ben Kingsley. I hate Gandhi and all that bullshit. And, you know, this wise man that he plays. But did you see him in Love Beast? Where he's this extremely brutal, vulgar guy. What if we need these lenses to perceive even his Gandhi? Then you notice that Gandhi was not such an innocent guy and so on. <laughs> and all, any honest Indian will tell you this. That's why Gandhi is now losing terribly in India. <coughs> okay. Now, to conclude, I'm saying that uh, if there is a writer of, I will try to be as short as possible, of abstraction, it's Beckett. Because on the one hand, Beckett is not abstract in the sense, in the way he is perceived as abstract, you know, like with some abstract existential problems out of politics and so on and so on. Uh, uh, years ago, uh, a lady called Emily Morin wrote a wonderful book, I think even in the 90s, on Beckett and politics. And she convincingly demonstrates how Beckett's entire work is penetrated through and through by political context, references, and so on. For example, what is, for me, his high point, all the three big novels, you know, uh, especially Malone Dice and Unnameable. Malone Dice, it's all about the historical context is the French situation and all around there in Europe immediately after World War Two, you know, millions of people displaced from uh, prisons uh, 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 to be repatriated, whatever, and... This is the background of Malone Dice. But now comes the genius of Beckett. What he does is not, what he does cannot but appear to a traditional Marxist as mystification. Like instead of depicting a concrete historical situation, he provides just an abstract image of this anxiety situation. But I think he is, I wonder, Frank, if you would agree that uh, he is, I'm sorry of disturbing you, you are probably thinking about more pleasant things, <laughs> is that uh, <laughs> Beckett is in this sense a platonic materialist. <clears throat> Instead of going deeply into historical context, he, in a platonic sense, abstracts from it the idea. Of, and this idea is not just the universality, but it's a concrete universality, the form of it, which is relatively independent from context. That's why, uh, and you know, uh, if you want the obvious example of uh, Beckett and abstraction, it's of course what is for me his single greatest play, the short one, Not I, where even it's like... I claim a stage version of unnameable, where even subjective identity is reduced uh, to a mouth. But uh, Beckett, at his most subversive, is in one of his even later short plays called Catastrophe, and it's such an evil, wonderful play, because officially it fits, it was... Uh, written, I think, in mid-70s or when, when Václav Havel was uh, condemned by Polish 
communist regime and it's in solidarity with him, blah, blah. But if you look at this play, it's incredible in its power of abstraction. It moves at three levels. First, you have on stage, if you know the play, otherwise download it on, on YouTube, you find ten versions of it. It's uh, back at, it's um, just on stage, it looks that somebody is uh, questioning, dire- uh, somebody is questioning a prisoner who is there standing like that. Then you soon got it that it's really a play about police interrogation and that the director is basically terrorizing the actor move the, your hand, and so on, and so on. Then, at the end, when people applaud, the guy who was totally broken down, the prisoner or actor playing the victim, just raises his hand and looks into it with a clear message. But you are doing the same. So, from this concrete, cheap dissident, or oh, communist horror, uh, Beckett's message is, but... When you stage this in theater, are you not participating in the same idea and a clear even step further? When you, when we are at the big dissident event of solidarity with prisoners and so on, are we not in some sense also participating in the same, in the same process? You know, it's this movement of abstraction in Beckett, which is, I think, uh, today, today, actual more than ever. These are questions to be raised today. In what sense, for example, this would be a Beckettian analysis of political correctness. In what sense political correctness, protesting against violence, but in the way it approaches it, reproduces violence on its own. So, again, I did not five minutes, but six, seven minutes. I have much more. It will all be in my next book, because I was always convinced that, again, sorry to disappoint you, Beckett is the one, not Joyce. Joyce is boring, bluffing, and so on. Uh, uh, Finnegan's Wake is, my God, what an arrogance to give something to do to literary analysts, what did he say, for 400 years, and so on. No, I, I am all for Beckett. I think there are three great writers of the 20th century in Europe. Beckett, Kafka, and Andrei Platonov, the Russian. And they all move in this same, uh, at this same Level, But to really conclude now, this is connected to what you said in introduction, this concrete universality and so on, no? That the first step towards serious analysis, that was my philosophical point, is to break the spell of this, you know. You can only understand things by locating them in their historical context. No. First, I think that the proof of the greatness of a work of art is precisely that it survives the abstraction from its context. What is so great about Shakespeare is that I'm ready to go so far. It's not, it's not only that, it's not true that you have to understand all the details of Elizabethan England to understand Shakespeare. It's quite on the contrary. To understand Elizabethan England today, you have to read Shakespeare. 
And the mystery of Shakespeare is precisely this power of abstraction. How he survives its, his own era. You can have modern Shakespeare, you, can, you know, all these versions of Shakespeare stage in today, which sometimes work even, which sometimes work even better. That's, for me, the true historicity, the true multiculturalism. I don't like Salman Rushdie. He's too liberal for me now. But once, and this is the concluding sentence, once I was with him at a round table and somebody attacked him for betraying his Indian origins. Like, you are now too integrated into the West, blah, blah. And she gave a nice answer, I must admit. She said, no, absolutely crucial influence of my work are two Indian writers. You know which two? Uh, Jane Austen and Charles Dickens. <laughs> he said, Jane Austen is the middle class Bombay life, Mumbai life I come from. As to poverty in India today, it's Oliver Twist and so on and so on. That's the true universality. This type of universality. I'm sorry if I was too long. On the other hand, fuck you, I'm not sorry. I <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>